It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm Ainsley Earhart. I'm Bill Hemmer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, October 6, 2023. I'm Chris Foster. After a record-breaking month and fiscal year of migrant encounters at the border, the Biden administration's fast-tracking new border wall construction. That's why the White House is now having to say, okay, maybe we're going to do some of the things that we completely criticized as terrible and inhumane during the Trump administration, and now we've got to take those same steps because we understand just how bad things are. We're speaking with Fox News Sunday host Shannon Bream. And Lisa Brady. The new normal is stressing out a lot of people, and more are asking for help but not necessarily feeling better. These diagnoses are very real, but I think the bigger elephant in the room is why are there so many more people you know, that, that have to be diagnosed with a mental illness? What, what is going on that is causing that? And I'm Lauren DeVellis-Appel. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. There will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. That's Joe Biden running for president, speaking with Verizon Media's Yahoo News in August 2020. Joe Biden, as president, reversed former President Trump's order, diverting money from military projects to border wall construction. Now, dealing with record numbers at the border, the administration's not just building, but speeding up construction of about 17 miles of border wall in South Texas by waiving 26 federal laws to get around environmental reviews. Money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what was appropriate. I can't stop that. Texas Senate Republican Ted Cruz on Fox and Friends. The policy is collapsing and it's a disaster. And and I don't believe a word of it. I think they're pretending. I think they're trying to pretend they give a damn because, look, blue states are finally seeing the consequences of this. The funding for this wall construction was approved by Congress in 2019. When you have the numbers that they have and our sources tell us, obviously the numbers coming from CBP for September are the largest biggest in history. Fox News Sunday and Live in the Bream podcast host, Shannon Bream. This is something where you're now regularly having Democrats publicly complain and call out the administration and the White House. I don't know that they had any other choice. I mean, honestly, I think it was just everything had come together in this perfect storm for them that they knew they had to do something. Yeah. What do critics of the Biden administration, Republican and Democrat, and there's been a steady growing drumbeat, what do they say specifically isn't being done or or is being done that shouldn't be done? I think they look at a lot of the executive action that President Trump had taken, things that were repealed when President Biden took over. And there was discussion at the time in the months after the transition there that there were transition team members that said to the Biden administration, if you do X, Y, and Z, you repeal these certain things, this is what's going to happen. The members of those transition conversations will say they warned the administration this is exactly what was going to happen. So I think a lot of it was the Title 42, the executive action, the remain in Mexico, all of those things that they had um, in many ways, members of the Biden administration said were inhumane and unfair. But I think a lot of people would argue, and you do have them doing this on both sides of the aisle, that what you've now wound up with is something that is equally inhumane and dangerous with cartels and human smuggling, uh, trafficking. Uh, It's just, um, you know, there are those who say they told the Biden administration plainly it would come to this. And mainly it was about getting rid of those executive actions. 
Uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who happens to be a Democrat, the city's been, I don't know, crushed, I guess, with migrants um, over the last year or so. He's on a trip to Mexico, Ecuador, Colombia. He's telling migrants, he's going on the radio, he's doing TV appearances. He's gone down there himself to say, look, to tell people you're being lied to about how easy this is, mm-hmm. um, how, how easy you're going to have it with jobs and housing or whatever, which is what they're being told, which is why they're coming. Well, and the thing is, you've had many cities and states that have acted as sanctuary cities. They've self-labeled and passed policies to that end. So it's difficult, I think, for a lot of Americans to look at leaders of those locations now saying, don't come here, when they will argue, you guys set the magnets in place. And of course, people who are in dire situations and want better for their children and for their own lives, if they get a glimmer of hope that they can get that in some of these states or counties or cities or wherever that have self-labeled as sanctuary, who among us as human beings can blame them for attempting to make those trips and to make those asylum claims and and do those things that they believed would lead them to another opportunity. So I think it's very interesting to now see some of these jurisdictions realize the weight of how difficult it is, the reality of you know, schools and hospitals and public functions that are straining because, um, you know, like Mayor Adams will say, you know, there's no limit to our compassion, but there is a limit to our resources. And that reality is coming home for a lot of those locations. Yeah. New York City also has this right to shelter right. law, which I they're, they're talking about tweaking that somehow now. I mean, it sounds terrific in theory, but how much shelter do you have? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, their resources are not they're finite. I mean, anywhere that you go. And there've been a lot of complaints that, you know, pointing fingers at some of these Southern state border state governors like Governor Abbott, who was in New York last week talking about this. And he said, you know, we get a lot of blame, but maybe Texas accounts for 10% of people who are actually, we took some action to get them here. But he said, you've got to remember the vast majority that people won't talk about it, but you do hear some Democrats talking about it, that it's the Biden administration that is busing, planning, training people to these locations that now feel overwhelmed. So take your complaints to the White House. And I think because of that, as we started out talking about, that's why the White House is now having to say, okay, maybe we're going to do some of the things that we completely criticized as terrible and inhumane during the Trump administration. And now we've got to take those same steps because we understand just how bad things are. Shannon, last week we both sort of predicted a government shutdown. Didn't happen. As of Tuesday morning, I very strongly figured Kevin McCarthy's going to ride this wave and he'll be sticking around as House Speaker. Around about the time uh, midday, Democrats said, you know what, you're on your own. Then it was, oh, I guess he's not going to be House Speaker anymore. (laughs) Are are you surprised that Democrats didn't save him? Well, all I'm going to say is I should not be running a psychic hotline because I did think there was going to be a government shutdown. I didn't see a way that they would thread this needle, but it leads to that domino effect of, okay, yeah, McCarthy had to work with Democrats to get this thing passed. He really doesn't get credit from a lot of quarters for keeping the government open. I mean, he will for technically doing that. But you had this small faction that said, if you're passing things with majority Democrat help, we consider that essentially you failing as speaker and we're not going to support you. So, you know, one, once, um, you know, Democrat leader Hakeem Jeffries said, my caucus is going to vote not to save you, we knew it was over then. But you know, was he going to be able to cut some kind of deal with Democrats that would have only angered the Matt Gates of the world even more who, you know, he vowed to keep calling this motion to vacate until he got rid of him. So unlike the 15 times it took Speaker McCarthy to become Speaker, it was only one round of votes that kicked him out. If the answer is with such a slim Republican majority in the House and a minority in the Senate, and obviously you don't have the White House, if you're not allowed to work with Democrats, 
says Matt Gates, on anything. So the, the answer then is literally no bills get passed if, 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 if it's unacceptable to ever compromise or, or reach out to the other side of the aisle. Yeah, or you can only pass things that have every single Republican member on board. And that's... But even then it's not going to pass. Even then it's not going to pass in the Senate. It's not going to get to the White House. It's not going to. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot of gridlock, which, you know, I think a lot of times we find that going into big election years anyway, because neither side wants to give the other a victory when you've got divided government because they don't want to help the potential candidate leading that, uh, you know, opposing party. So, you know, I guess you can just sort of sit back and relax for the next year because I don't <laughs> see a whole lot of legislation getting right. done on the Hill. Not anything important. Yes, they're going to name a post, post office. Yeah, it's good. We, just, we both said post office at the same time. Yes, they'll do things for veterans. They will do things for post offices, like the bare minimum that they can all agree on. But they're really not going to do anything substantive. Like forget even a discussion of immigration reform and policy reform, which is one of the biggest issues facing this country, they will not get it done. I don't even think anything will go to committee or they'll have a conversation because neither side is going to give the other a win on that. And it's disastrous and unfair to the people of this country and to the people risking their lives coming here. But, you know, I think that's a good question for everybody who's running for president. How in the world would you navigate this and actually get things done for the American people? So do we predict once again that there will be a government shutdown uh, when this continuing resolution runs out? Uh, Since I was yeah, terribly wrong on the last one, <laughs> um, I think a lot of it will come down to the speaker's race next week. Um, I think once the House GOP figures that out, we'll have a better sense. But then you're into 30 something days left to get 12 appropriations bills passed. House will say we've gotten four done. The Senate should take those up. And maybe they can. I mean, obviously, they have to go to conference to get things hammered out. And that is going to be really difficult. But if everybody says... Um, you know, hey, we're going to be the grownups in the room and get this thing done. Otherwise, I'm more familiar with us doing these continued resolutions that end up around Christmas and New Year's that kind of blow up everybody's holidays. Um, so we'll see if they are able to do this with 45 days, which, you know, a chunk of that's already gone. What's to stop this um, motion to vacate and, and having a new mm-hmm. speaker election from happening again and again and again with that again with that slim Republican majority and how easy it is to vote to remove just one member can call the vote? Does the next speaker just have to count on cooler heads prevailing and Matt Gates uh, well, and those people got their got their scalp. And so the, and so now we can move on. Well, I mean, there's a real conversation about <laughs> the new speaker. Maybe one of the first orders of business is to get rid of that role. And I, I'm not going to lie. I would need to call Chad Pergram, our, our Hill expert right now, and or maybe, you know, as to how they exactly undo that rule, because that was a deal McCarthy made to get the votes he needed. Right. So can the next speaker say, just by the way, I'm getting rid of this if you vote for me? Um, that I, I don't do know, know if Scalise or Jordan would know. You, you tell I, me. I don't know. Um, Jim Jordan, um, who is one of the people mm-hmm. running for speaker, we know he said um, he's basically out of it. If Republicans band together and say we want to keep the rule, get rid of the rule, that's going to be majority rule. And he's not going to put his thumb on the scale. Um, mm-hmm. a, a sidebar to all of this. Uh, former speaker Nancy Pelosi's office is apparently now oh being taken away. Do you know the backstory there? Well, I mean, what what the chatter is from some Republicans is that was um, that and Steny Hoyer's office, also you know Democrat leadership, being taken away from them in retaliation for them removing Kevin as speaker. So. You know, the people who felt like that was a bad move and that Kevin should have been saved by some of his colleagues on the other side of the aisle, sort of a more gentlemanly, gentlewomanly agreement from Democrats. 
Um, and, and Pelosi, just this and, is the payback for that. Right. And this isn't like a regular office. Pelosi, like, no, these, these are, are like special. sort of hidden special. Yeah, like, and so they're yeah. they're right off the uh, the floor there. So that they listen, they all have the offices. They're back in the main buildings, which are sort of a block off of the Capitol. But for the you know more leadership folks, they have uh, an office that's right there, um, close to the floor, so that they're not traipsing back and forth. They can have little meetings there, have their own space there. It's very coveted and very rare to have those. So. You know, I think even for people who felt like, all right, this is, you know, a, a slap back at the Democrats to sort of punish them for not saving Kevin McCarthy. Um, you know, the fact that it came when Nancy Pelosi was out in California dealing with the funeral things for Senator Dianne Feinstein, you know, it felt a little a little bit too snarky to some people, you know, give it a couple of days. But, you know, the tensions are very heated up there on the Hill right now. And, you know, that's the inside explanation we have is it's payback for the speaker vote. Shannon Bream, host of Fox News Sunday, also host of the Livin' the Bream podcast. Shannon, thanks. Have a good one. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. This is Lauren DeBella Sapel with your Fox News commentary coming up. One of the many ripple effects of COVID is a greater focus on a different kind of well-being. Uh, mental health is one of the biggest issues facing our country. Minnesota Senator John Tester chairing a recent hearing on veterans' mental health and suicide prevention. Congress also holding hearings on a mental health crisis for America's youth. I can admit that I do have an addiction to my phone. Florida high school senior Cooper Priest also admits just how damaging that addiction has been. I have personally experienced... Um, mental illness because of my device even like just recently i can't say i'm out of the woods from it just this week the british education secretary called for banning cell phones in schools in part to help crack down on bullying across the u.s some districts are expanding school-based mental health care hoping to spot red flags earlier and make sure families get the help they need about one in eight adults in the u.s now takes an antidepressant with one in five receiving mental health care recently in federal estimates and nearly one-third report symptoms of anxiety anxiety or depression, about three times as many as in 2019. But not all of the change is as recent. A Time Magazine report highlighting how just 31% rate their mental health as excellent, compared to 43% in 2002, a drop that happened even as the share of Americans seeking treatment increased. Yeah, so the COVID lockdowns and, every, and all that stuff, it, it didn't really start there. We've had a mental health epidemic that really started around 2012. Tom Kirsting is a psychotherapist and author of the new book, Raising Healthy Teenagers, also the author of bestseller, Disconnected. The common denominator there is that's when smartphones became mainstream, right? So the COVID really accelerated it. And, you know, how it accelerated is that as human beings, you know, we are by nature hunters and gatherers. We're supposed to be out moving. You know, physical movement is critical to mental well-being as it's socializing with other people, as, as social emotional beings. And the lockdowns and restrictions and everything really inhibited everybody, kids, adults, and so forth. And when you're sort of cocooned, you know, by yourself in a room without really any interaction with other people, that sort of becomes your comfort zone, right? So whatever you're doing regularly becomes a comfort zone, it becomes a habit. And what really happened is when people, you know, when we got out of COVID, um, when people had to go back to what was once normal, you know, the, for a lot of people, the, the body sent off stress signals because that was not something that was normal anymore. 
are people being diagnosed with things like depression and anxiety more quickly than in, in the past? And likewise with medication, you know, does it have anything to do with there being less of a stigma now? Yeah, well, you know, I have my own thoughts on the whole on, on the whole medication element of it. So I'm not, I don't prescribe medication. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, so I'm, the, I'm, you know, doing the heavy load. So I get a lot of people that'll come to my office with, you know, symptoms of depression and anxiety and so forth. And oftentimes, you know, their first thought process is, should I go get medication, right? And I tell people, you don't want to get medicated for anything, right? For especially for you know psychotropic medications until you have, you know, explored other avenues, right? So if somebody you know, they have some anxiety about, you know, going on, going to heights or social anxiety and so forth. If if that anxiety isn't crippling a person to the point where they can't function, if it is crippling a person with the point they can't function, you know, they can't go to work, for example. Yeah, then maybe medication is something to explore. But, you know, if it's not crippling, you know, we can learn how to navigate, you know, the things that trigger the anxiety. You know, it's, it's through exposure. The more you expose yourself to whatever the anxiety provoking stimuli is, you know, you can extinguish it. So that's a lot of the stuff that I do with people. I help, you know, I really help them to identify all right, what's triggering anxiety, right? And what are you not doing? How are you thinking? Are you thinking in, with intent? Are you taking timeouts every day and using your mind instead of your mind using you? In terms of the diagnoses, though, I mean, are, are we, are people being diagnosed more well, frequently? Well, they sure are. I mean, I think, you know, because so many more people are seeking mental health services, there's always a diagnosis that comes with that. Like on our end, you know, we have to provide somebody with a, with a clinical diagnosis, you know, so that they'll get reimbursed from their, from their insurance companies and so forth. That's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's a good thing that more people are, you know, are reaching out for help. You know, so it's not that they're being over, I wouldn't say they're being overdiagnosed. These diagnoses are very real. But I think the bigger elephant in the room is why are there so many more people, you know, that, that have to be diagnosed with a mental illness? What What is going on that is causing that? One other thing on this point before we turn to more of those causes. Depression and anxiety by the numbers are still said to be rising, even though more people are seeking help. Why does a mental health crisis seem to be worsening even as more people are seeking help? No, I'm going to tell you why right now. Okay. So the reason why it's worsening is it's because, you know, when somebody comes to my office, I'm actually at my office right now in between appointments. So when somebody comes to my office, right, and we talk and we connect and we identify what the issues are, it's what they do when they leave here that's that's paramount in terms of, of succeeding mentally, right? So I give people a lot of different strategies. So if somebody comes here and we just have a conversation about what's bothering them and, you know, and we regurgitate all of these things, that's not going to help as much as, you know, giving people actual assignments to do on their own, right? So what I have, you know, people, like I said, people... In order to have a strong mental well-being, it requires work and effort. And the work and effort is literally taking timeouts on a daily basis, right? Get becoming conscious instead. We're always distracted. Our mind is always somewhere else. And, you know, doing actual work to develop the mental aerobics. And, you know, some of the work is sitting in silence, right? Focusing on your breathing, meditating, using visualization, using attitude of gratitude, really, you know, sifting through this stuff. So it's really... You know, a lot of it comes down to what they are doing when they leave the office. Most people, what are, what are they doing when they get home? They're on the internet, they're on social media, they're on their phones, right, with their downtime. That people need to utilize their downtime effectively instead of their downtime utilizing them. And a lot of this comes down really to 
coping with mental health challenges as opposed to any kind of a quick fix, right? And we do live in this culture of instant gratification. So in addition to maybe not following your assignments, do people tend to give up on therapy too quickly? Not necessarily, but you know, you just you just hit something very important right there, that instant gratification, right? So nowadays we hit a button and DoorDash delivers our food, right? We see a shirt we want, Amazon delivers it the next day, sometimes that day. Right. So we're we live in a society right now of instant gratification. And when you look at the millennial generation, as an example, um, some studies that I cite in my book, my recent book, Raising Healthy Teenagers, the millennial generation, despite having access to so much more with the click of a button, is, I believe, the most unhappy generation in history. So, you know, so scarcity, like there, there really isn't much scarcity. And I think part of that is when you're so accustomed, you know, to getting what you want at the flick of a button, right? And all of a sudden, if you don't get what you want for whatever reason, what is, what is, how does your mind process that? <laughs> Think about that. Yeah, I know you've also highlighted family function as an issue, this concept of absent families. What does that mean and how do we fix that? You know, when you look at, and I talk about this in my book, Disconnected, if you look at the typical family of four, like when I think of a family, I think of like the Brady Bunch. You know what I mean? Like every, everybody's interacting, doing things together. Families having dinner. My generation, every family had dinner together every night of the week. So families, you know, when you really just like look into what a family looks like nowadays, it's not very definitive of what you would see in the dictionary. It's almost like four individuals that are family members, mom, dad, daughter, son, as an example, that live under the same roof but are doing their own thing. Johnny's in his room playing his Xbox, daughter's in her room on her phone, dad's watching TV, mom's doing her thing. You know, there's not really the dialogue. In fact, I cite something else in that book I just mentioned, Disconnected. The average parent nowadays spends just three and a half minutes per week in meaningful conversation with their children, right? And that's because everybody's distracted. Now, if you look at research, the relationship, right, between parent and child, the relationship that a child has with their parents is probably the most important thing for their mental health outcomes, for their mental and emotional well-being. But a relationship is founded not on each person being in their own room. It's founded on having family dinners together, not letting your kid be on the phone when you're driving them to school. There's got to be a lot of face-to-face meaningful interaction, which previous generations always had, and present generations do not have a lot of. And that's a really stunning statistic or estimate three and a half minutes per week of meaningful Mm -hmm. interaction i mean even three and a half minutes per day would have sounded low um but that's jarring what about england's move to ban smartphones in schools how much can that help given all of the issues i've been pushing for that for years right just when i'm lecturing and i've had i've actually had some school administrators and schools that i've spoken to across the country that have brought forth those policies of banning phones from the school. Now, the reason why it's difficult for schools to do that is because of the parents, because that phone has become the umbilical cord between the parent and child, right? What if there's an emergency, this and that, blah, blah, blah. But the truth is that that device, that on a kid's person during school, I call these phones the modern day weapons of mass distraction, right? So if you have a child in a classroom that is sitting there, even if they're not allowed to have their phone on, if that phone's in their pocket and that phone buzzes and it's gonna buzz every 10 seconds, Whatever the teacher is teaching, their brain cannot possibly process because the brain can't do two things at once. Their brain is going directly to that phone in their pocket. So it's impacting, you know, education and learning for sure. And it also impacts, you know, kids socially 
because if when they when they're getting out of the classroom immediately they're getting on their phones walking down the hallway so they're not really interacting when they're in the lunchroom they're on a tablet they're on their phone they're not interacting and and that is critically important at all age groups and when that isn't happening you know that affects our mental health as well because human beings are wired to be social and emotional beings what advice can you offer for people who are seeking urgent help or maybe aren't seeking help yet but should be um, feeling really stressed with all of the challenges that have snowballed um, or at least they feel like they've snowballed for a lot of people since the pandemic yeah and that's the problem like when 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 things are snowballing right and you're spiraling where's the mind right so we have like 60,000 thoughts a day most of which are subconscious so that we call it stinking thinking so the mind is regurgitating you know, fear, failure, doubt, what if this, what if that, right? So what people need to do, right, is be aware of that, right? And and carve out on a daily basis, 10 or 15 minutes of literally sitting in silence and delving within oneself, getting to know self within and inventorying consciously now, inventorying everything that you are grateful for in life, right? Everything that makes you, you, your confidence and motivation, that's being proactive, right? And a lot of people aren't doing that. We're sort of just, our minds are spinning all day long. It's like focusing on the positive for a good 10 or 15 minutes. Is that kind of? Yeah. And it's, you know, that's like may sound cliche, just think positive, but it's it's being positive. It's like learning the skill of, of self. Right. So this has to be a daily type of thing, like not just I'm going to do this two times and think positively. I'm gonna, everything's going to be fine. This has to be a, a, a habitual daily thing. It's like the old expression, a little light will always chase away a lot of darkness. Well, probably easier said than done for a lot of people, right? But but sure. but worth trying. Yeah, like like the old another expression, success comes before work only in the dictionary. Tom Kirsting, psychotherapist and the author of the new book Raising Healthy Teenagers, also best-selling author of Disconnected. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Lisa, appreciate it. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Lauren Appel. What's on your mind? Across the country, you could hear a collective sigh of relief this week when nine-year-old Charlotte Senna was safely returned home. As parents everywhere watched their worst nightmare unfold when the little girl vanished while riding her bike during a family camping trip in New York, just a few short miles from her home. Thanks to the vigilant work of law enforcement officers committed to finding Charlotte, they did just that after her abductor's fingerprints were discovered on a ransom note he dropped in the family's mailbox. It goes without saying that anyone who messes with kids is the absolute worst kind of low-life garbage human who should never see the light of day again. At the time of her disappearance, Governor Kathy Hochul said, hopefully there will be a reunion. Hopefully there will be a family that has been traumatized but reunited. Hopefully. That's what many of us were thinking. But parents anxiously watching last weekend couldn't help but silently wonder if they'd seen this movie before and the ending wasn't always happy. Thankfully, this was not one of those endings. In a statement, Charlotte's family thanked their army of supporters and said, we are thrilled that she is home and we understand that the outcome is not what every family gets. It certainly isn't. Whether you chalk it up to exceptional law enforcement, the grace of God, 
a happy coincidence, I don't believe in coincidences, or none of the above, one thing is for sure, her safe return was nothing short of a miracle. Today, parents who free range get a bad rap, parents who helicopter get a bad rap. And while we're all busy pointing fingers at each other, most of us are silently praying we get just enough of this parenting thing right to not land our kids on a shrink's couch in their adult years. The fact of the matter is, as parents, there is so much that is out of our control. The vast majority of us use our best judgment, and if we have a belief in a higher power, we wake up each day, put our kids in God's hands, and pray they'll be okay. But there are no guarantees in life, and that can be terrifying when it comes to our children. If you ever want to know how much is really out of your hands, have kids. It's a humbling way to reform a control freak. Super fun. Times like these are sobering. While there are arguably any number of important things going on in the world right now, when we hear about a Charlotte Senna, it mutes the volume on all the outside noise and shifts our focus to what really matters, our kids, our spouse, and our faith in something greater than ourselves. This is Lauren DeBellis-Appel, a former lobbyist and communications aide on Capitol Hill and writer in Fairfax, Virginia. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com.